you grow to a certain level of leadership that you want to get to, right? So that you have influence and so that you share the, the gifts that God has given you. But at some point, when you're moving in that direction, you got to remember that humility is really the key. So, so yes, you want to be a leader, but a leader that's humble enough. You want to lead, but that's leading not always from the front. In some cases, sometimes from the very back of the room. New generations of Hispanics in America experience a deep desire for belonging. The need to be known, loved, and connected has never had such paramount importance. But strategies to connect with youth, particularly Latino youth, have had varying success. Young adults are, are all searching. They are, they are actually willing to go to different churches. They go to different churches. They don't, they don't set roots because they're in this search. But in that scratching of the surface, they never really find the depth anywhere. In today's episode, we hear the experience of Armando Cervantes, a diocesan leader in areas of diversity and youth, who shares key thoughts on how leaders can provide the connection and identity that young Latinos are searching for and that organizations of all kinds so desperately need today. This is Living the Call. Friends, I'm really thrilled to be able to be with Armando Cervantes, Director of Youth and Young Adult and Hispanic Ministry. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, for the Diocese of Orange. Armando, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So good to have you in the studio. Yes, a beautiful studio. Thank you. Great very to be much. with you, Deacon. It's a completely different dynamic when you've got people in front of you. you That's know what I mean? right. Because you can do this stuff Zoom or right. whatever, but it's just, it makes a difference when you're in the same room oh, yeah. and you're actually talking. Oh yeah, seeing somebody face to face, right? You're not just looking at a screen or you're looking at the camera or you're looking at the, you know, down at the screen and you're not even seeing what the person's doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. How long have you been at the Diocese of Orange? You know, at the Diocese of Orange, so I just celebrated my 20th anniversary wow. working for the okay. Diocese. Nice. At the at the pastoral center, the diocesan offices, I've been there since 2008. So I've been there for 13 years. For those people who uh, may not be from Southern California, the Diocese of Orange, I mean, actually a lot of people in Southern California probably don't even know that. No, we're like a really small diocese in comparison to all of you guys here in the Archdiocese of LA. Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, do, do you find that like you run into people who are like, wait, there's a, there's another bishop. Oh in, yeah. Uh, so close to Archbishop Gomez. Oh yeah. They're like, oh, you're in LA. And I'm like, no, no. And then the, the, I think the only way I can get people to understand we're a different diocese is if I say Disneyland. That's that's all of a sudden when they say, oh, oh, so there's a diocese there. And I'm right. like, yes, it, it's it a clicks. smaller diocese. We're like the a small little brother of between L.A., San Diego and San Bernardino. I mean, that literally is what people just totally just pass by, you know, by us. And, oh, I'm in San Diego. Oh, I'm in here. But even though it's smaller, I mean, and it's been a diocese for how long? Do we, do I, do uh, in that? the 70s. It 70s, was, right? Yeah, yeah. Part of L.A. originally, obviously. Right. Uh, in the but 70s. it's got too big. It kind of like broke into its own thing. That's right. right. But even then, I mean, we're the 11th largest diocese in the United States. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like, even though it's smaller, oh, right. it's like, it's not small. <laughs> exactly. and even, you know, it's super diverse and, you know, it's a, it's just a little microcosm of the church itself. Right. Yeah. I think, I think I didn't really understand that dynamic until I started traveling, right? That people were like, I mean, my diocese, my farthest, you know, parish is 45 minutes away. When I would hear somebody would say, oh, well, my my farthest parish is three hours away. I got to cross state lines to. Wow. And I would be like, what, what? are you? That's so weird. What yeah. do you mean? Yeah. So I, I've been blessed. I mean, I was born and raised in Orange County. So it was the diocese I knew. And it, it wasn't until kind of God called me other places to really see the the breath of, uh, of our, you know, beautiful church. Absolutely. So you've been working there for 20 years. Now I got your title right, right? Because, I mean, you wear a number of different hats. I know that it's youth ministry, but also... 
Hispanic ministry. Talk to us about the kind of things that, that you're involved with on a daily basis for those folks who may not be familiar with those kinds of roles from a diocesan level. Right. So so in, the, in you know, I always say that in the diocesan level, our job is to support those who minister, right? So it's it's, it's loving, it's ministering the ministers, because the healthier the minister, the more disciples that minister can make. So, you know, in our diocesan capacity, our job is to be able to support those ministers in, in whatever role they need. And by ministers, everything from a volunteer, a paid minister at a parish, even a pastor who may say, listen— I want to, you know, get get my youth ministry started, and I need help. Uh, I don't know how to engage the Hispanic community, and you know, and I'm a brand new pastor. Help me out. So our job is really is really very diverse in the sense of responding to the needs that are right in front of our churches. And so, how can we be there to accompany the leadership uh, when they need the help? What kind of uh, what ways would a Catholic in the pews sort of recognize the that helping of those ministers? Like, what would how would it manifest itself for them? You know, usually what would happen is if there's a ministry that doesn't exist or a ministry that needs uh, some strengthening, usually we'll come in and we'll support. And every pastor is different. You know, some some pastors uh, very wisely will say, "How about you train my team? I want my team to be you know up to speed." And so we support the team. Other times it's like, "Why don't you model it for them? You do the first workshops. You do the." the initial startup, and then from there, my team will take it on. So it manifests itself in very different ways. Uh, just last night, I was with a group of parents at uh, St. Mary's in Fullerton just talking about how to engage more our young people, you know, how to have better communication. And I, 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 love, I love the combination of the kind of the large talks and the large conversation and the very localized, right? I can I can all, I can sit with a bishop and sit with the pastors, but I can also just to sit with parents and have a prayer and a conversation about you. That's people. beautiful. Which is in and of itself is sort of an image of the church, right? This idea of like sort of solidarity, but also subsidiarity. Okay, well, I want to dive into a couple things with you because, I mean, I, you and I met very recently. We're actually introduced to one another, but we kind of hit it off right away. We got a, like a lot of things in common. You know, you've been thinking about some of these issues longer than I have, right? From a church perspective. And what I mean by these issues, I mean things in particular uh, influence the young and affect the young. But you've also got two decades worth of experience doing this. So one of my first questions is, how's the situation evolved or changed over that 20-year period of time in terms of working with young people? And the work that I mean, what you just described, basically, like, you know, getting them involved, um, hearing what their concerns are, what their issues, what their needs are. Talk to me about that evolution over that 20-year period of time. Are we in a different place right now than we've been? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways we are. You know, what's really funny is is the evolution didn't just happen to the young people, right? The evolution happened to me as well. I mean, I remember starting in ministry, and I was this young, you know, zealous for the faith young man who was all about the faith. And that I was would... yesterday's gospel, by the way. Zeal <laughs> for your right. house will consume me. That's right. No, I was. Wait, I you was were more <laughs> zealous than you are now. How's that possible, Armando? Come on, that's no, like no. off the grid zealousness. You know, there was there was a zealousness of just I just. I didn't know. I mean, you know, you're young. You're sure. just you're just passionate about what you're doing. I, I'm yeah. in confirmation. I'm telling parents what's wrong with you. You know, you should focus on faith. You didn't sign up in time. You know, you ha I haven't seen you enough here. I wasn't even a parent. I had no clue what it was to be a parent and you know be so busy and have to deal with a lot of kids. But the reality was. I grew just as much as I challenged those young people and those families to grow. And I think the Holy Spirit definitely has has massaged and challenged me and helped me see in different ways and really learn how to accompany well, right? Mm. That there's a moment for zealousness and a moment to challenge and there's a moment to care. And and when is that balance? And on that end of things, no, things haven't changed. We have mm. young people on all the spectrums who need love in order to bring them forward or who need to be challenged and pushed because that's where God is calling them, right, Amen. to challenge them. Um, so I don't think that's changed. But I definitely think 
Social media, technology definitely has switched the game around for us. And the church has always been slow to adapt a lot of times. And even though, you know, now I'm, I'm talking about Clubhouse and Twitter spaces, you know, some parishes are saying, what are you talking about? I'm just figuring out this Can we translate TikTok the thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. uh, we were just laughing. Actually, we did a young, uh, young adult leadership and some pastors were present and they were talking about flyers. Right. And I said, listen, whether you do it on Canva or you do it on Publisher, it's still a flyer. Nobody's reading a flyer anymore. Can we find other ways to engage and invite? And some young adults were like, yes, yes, you know, tell the pastor. Uh, I've been trying to tell them, you know, for right. for, for months, for years. Uh, but in some senses, yeah, some, th some things haven't changed, right? Our young people need the church more than ever. I would actually argue and say they need us more now than they ever have. Right. That in some ways, this social media presence has only made them or isolated them even more, have only made them That's... more in need of the relational approach that Jesus is, is trying to offer them. And unfortunately, their eyes are glued somewhere else. Somewhere else, distracted. It's kind of crazy that, because what you just said is what all the data indicates, right? The more connectivity we've created, the more isolated we felt. It's like this amazing... Ironic, kind of right? Well, for sure. And then you see it in the kind of, I, I think, in evidence with the kind of anxiety levels and depression levels and all that stuff. But it's so true what you're saying, but it's counterintuitive. You would expect the opposite. It's like, we're so hooked up. We're so connected. It should be like everybody's warm and fuzzy, but it's the opposite. We feel cold and distant. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because if anything, the church has more of a response now than ever before. And yet we feel so farther away that we can't reach them. Right? Why is that? It, but again, I feel like we've we've been very good at staying in our lane and saying, listen, come over. Let me open the doors. Yeah. Oh, let me get creative. Let me bring you donuts. Yeah. You know, but they're not even coming through the doors. Like, how do we how do we go bring back the evangelization zeal that is needed from those missionaries that have taught us from, I mean, here in California, right? Yeah. St. Junipero Serra, right? It, going and trailblazing new roads that didn't exist. That's where we need to be. I love what you said a moment ago, too, because uh, about like, hey, we got a challenge, but we also have to accompany and you have to kind of know the difference. I'm not sure how much, um, like in the marketing world, you it's almost like step one. You want to segment your audience. Like, who am I talking to? Am I talking to the guy who's got X life experience, X psychographic demographic? But from a church and ministry standpoint, we oftentimes don't begin that way. I was talking recently to Father Agustino Torres, who you would know very well. And the way that he put it was actually similar to you in the sense that he said, you've got your St. Augustines and you've got your St. Therese's, right? But the idea of like... Um, segmenting people, like who are the people that are going to respond to that challenge, whether the challenge is intellectual, apologetic, evangelical, who are the people that are going to respond to just that knowledge of being loved? And ultimately, look, we're all on all of these spectrums at one point, but like understanding who they are, I'm not sure how much we do that, like in ministry, generally speaking. No, I think you're right. I think that, you know, we talk about discernment being so important. And I think the discernment sometimes goes out the window when we're just trying to respond. But the respond is reactionary rather than truly led by the Spirit, I feel. I feel that we, 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 we're we always looking at buzzwords or always looking at the newest document of the church or whatever we latch onto, but it becomes something we latch onto, right? Is it something God is really guiding us? I always tell whenever we do leadership for youth ministers, we always talk about being a gatekeeper versus a conduit, right? That that we somehow think, and, I, and this, is, this was me as a young minister, right? I'm the gatekeeper. You want to know information about the church, you come through me, right? And at one point it was like, what am I doing? You know, am I am I limiting the spirit? Am I getting in the way of the gospel and the message in the spirit? I, I can't do that anymore, right? I have to find ways that people are going to feel love, 
you know, be moved by the spirit with or without me because it doesn't matter whether it's me or not. Yeah. What matters is that they know Christ. So, so interesting, the idea of like quenching the spirit, right? That's obviously scripture. I was talking to someone, I'm not going to name who, but I was doing some ministry recently and this woman was very, was fallen away from the church for decades. And after some conversation with me, she's like, oh, I really want, where do you, you know, where is your parish? And I want to go there. And what time are you going to be there? And I said, listen, if I'm never there, like, you know, please come, right? So the idea of being that gate, that, that like uh gatekeeper, like, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's not the way to lead people into that relationship. But I think it happens maybe in some cases, it's a bit of a temptation, but I can definitely see it happening. Well, and I think that's in sometimes, you know, that's the, that's the paradox of leadership, right? In the church, right? It's like you, you, you grow to a certain level of leadership that you want to get to, right? So that you have influence and so that you share the, the gifts that God has given you. But at some point, when you're moving in that direction, you got to remember that humility is really the key. Hmm. So, so yes, you want to be a leader, but a leader that's humble enough. You want to lead, but that's leading not always from the front. In some cases, sometimes from the very back of the room, right? The the secret of a youth minister, I tell them whenever they, at the very first meeting I get to meet them, I'm like, here's the secret. The secret is you love the young people, and I actually don't want you to work with young people. <laughs> And they're like, what do you mean? I love young people. That's why I came. Right. And I said, I need you to instill that energy, that love for young people in other adults. Mm. So at some point, you were called because you had those gifts. Mm. Now share those gifts with others. Because if you don't share those gifts with others, if you keep it all to yourself and you keep doing the youth group, we're not serving the, the young people in your community. You're serving the very small subset. That's super interesting, you know, and it's crazy to think about yeah. because it's the opposite of what you think, right? It's, right. It's it's it's. I wait. No, God called me because I'm good with young people. That that's why. Let me serve young people, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I want you to serve them, but not in the way that you think, right? right? And and it is it is totally counterintuitive. It's but like God's little pyramid scheme in a way. It's like there's no product. <laughs> it's just we just need more salesmen. I thought about this recently. It's very it's so interesting you mentioned this too because um, we do some um, we have a ministry for homelessness. My wife and I for for a number of years. And oftentimes we'll get the question of like, well, what do you need to make your efforts bigger? And my wife's response is always like, we don't want to be bigger. We want to inspire other small people. You know what I mean? To like kind of do this thing before you get sort of too unwieldy. But um, yeah, that's that's super interesting insight. Well, I, I think I was telling people when I left my parish as a youth minister, one of my proudest moments was that I could walk into a uh, XLT, which was a big worship, you know, uh, exalt night, adoration night. I would walk in and there would be young people there that I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know their faces and I wouldn't know their names. But there was a team surrounding those young people and it didn't matter whether they knew me or not, right? And that was the point. It was it was beyond me. And at that point, it wasn't whether it was about me or not. And so many times, I think the sad, the saddest part sometimes of ministers is whenever they leave a church, how that ministry they built just crumbles falls apart. and falls apart, right? And, and you're like, well, why does that happen? Well, that's why, you know, because they didn't build enough people around them to also follow and lead that mission, mm. right? It, it, was, it was built around them. And maybe that wasn't their intention, but it was the unintentional consequence of us not sharing the mission with others. Absolutely. Going back to the point about the, you know, some people being challenged and other people being accompanied over that 20-year period of time, do you think that the ratio has evolved at all, or do you think it's similar in terms of 100 young people when you got started? Would you say that you ran into the types that needed more of that challenge, and now it's less challenge, more a company? Like, how's that sort of point on that spectrum moved, if it has, in that 20, 20 years? I'll, so I'll just speak for me in here in Orange yeah. County, right? I think I have seen more of the shift of people needing more accompaniment and care 
rather than challenge. I think when I first I started, the challenge was right there. And actually people would take on that challenge, right? Let's do it. Like I'll figure it out. Like challenging them meant that you were sparking an energy in them. But now challenging sometimes is too much. They they need first to be supported in yeah. order to handle the challenge. Super um, interesting. And and again, I also I point back to the to the research, right? There's more isolation, there's more anxiety, there's more depression. Last year we saw an uptick in suicides like crazy in our teenagers and young adults. I think the the stat that we saw in Springtide research, one in four youth and young adults last year contemplated suicide, right? The highest that it's ever been, right? And and again, in in a world where they're connected, right? I yeah. mean, you and I could argue that if this pandemic would have happened 50 years ago, what would we have done? There's no phones, there's no, right? And somehow, even despite this connection, there's a disconnect to the world. It's amazing. I mean, that stat is just mind blowing. I mean, I knew it was high, I just didn't know it was like that, that high, that's crazy. And you know, we also, you're bringing up a really good point about the fact that there is a, a kind of an ebb and flow and an evolution to the way that ministry is effective given a time and place, right? So 20 years ago, to your point, maybe it was more about like, hey, we want to challenge you, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever. But now it's so easy to just program an, a reality to yourself that you're kind of so isolated that we need to break through that with like, hey, you know what? I love you. Come walk with me. Let me show you. And then that kind of draws me in. And again, both of these approaches are probably, they're perennial, they're timeless, but it's at that moment in time that it becomes more effective. And I think, you know, particularly so, which is another thing I want to talk to you about, because I know this is something we share in common, is as it relates to who youth actually are and what their unique needs are in terms of uh, the demographic reality of who they are and their kind of cultural background and all that. Well, I think that's, that's the, you know, that's the interesting part, right, is that despite so much information available for them, they're struggling with their identity, right? This identity of who they are, who they are in the eyes of God, who they are in the eyes of, of their friends, of their family, you know, maybe for you and I in our generations, we might have said, well, that was easy. Come on. I mean, not easy, but, you know, you had the people around you, you'd figure it out, mm -hmm. right? And it also, it again, seems like you have too much information coming at them that, at no point are you actually making a decision, right? And I, I, I see this a lot with young adults, even with faith, right? Uh, young adults are are all searching. They are, they are actually willing to go to different churches. They go to different churches. They don't they don't set roots because they're in this search. But in that scratching of the surface, they never really find the depth anywhere, mm. right? And I've told young adults at some point you got to put your roots down. Why? Because the depth is what you're searching for. It's what you're yearning for. But you're not going to find it by scratching the surface and going to 10 parishes all the time, right? It's the same with our discernment and our vocation, right? You, oh, well, I had this young adult who would say, well, I don't want to choose, you know, religious order. And I'm like, why not? There's so many great ones. Well, I'm going to try all these different ones because what if I miss something, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to learn the best from all of them. That's a FOMO. Like, yeah, oh, totally FOMO. Yeah. But I'm like, you realize the depth of all of them is Christ, right? Mm -hmm. All of them will That's bring right. you to the same core, I said, but you're so busy looking that the thing you're actually searching for, you're never going to find until you decide to pick one. It's amazing to me also in the broader kind of secular space, the fact that young people in many ways have sort of recreated religion in a way, right? They're like different, you know, wellness and, you know, a lot of self help, self help, a lot of these, and they're exploding uh, oh, uh, huge, concepts, huge. huge concepts. But in a way, it's sort of like a, a reinvention or a recreation of of and, and and a longing to your point, a longing for this community, for relationship with uh, transcendent uh, you know reality, 
you know, I always just say like every soul is looking for its maker, whether you realize it or not. It's just kind of drawn to it. It's just it evolves over time. Well, I remember telling young people, you know, it's like at no point did Jesus say, follow yourself. You know, it's right. like because it's the like you're looking within to, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he says, follow me. It's like you, he's telling you exactly the secret and you like are doing the opposite of it. And then you're like, I wonder why I feel so empty. Um, and I, I think it's that that's, goes back to the same point. Right. How do we accompany these young people to get to that level? Because it's not something you and I could say that just switches the you know, that just changes their mindset. We need to walk with them through Absolutely. whatever challenges they have, whatever realities going on, so that they accept that for themselves. We're, we're, they're also coming up in a culture that is very kind of amorphous with respect to rules or any kind of rigidity. And I'm not saying that young people have ever loved the idea of rules, <laughs> but but it feels like right now that's an obstacle that people say like, oh, it's just there's so many like, you know, things I must do. Do you come across that in your ministry? Like people saying like, what are all these rules for? Do they look at it in the context of that? Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that's, that's there. I mean, that coupled with how they are questioning every oh, leader, sure. every, you know, government agency, every, that they don't trust anyone. I mean, that just, it's a terrible combination, right? But I mean, I'm sure your listeners and you, I mean, when you were a teenager, right? When you were a young adult, I mean, you were trying to buck the system too, sure. right? You were trying to to push those boundaries. So in that sense, it's no different. It's just that now they have outlets that support their theories. And even if it's a small theory, that outlet feels like you're listening to the entire world and the entire world agrees with you. And you can program that outlet just to yourself and to get wall to wall, all whatever that point of view is. And you can just eat it all day long, which never happened before, right? The whole idea of mass media is kind of dead in a way. We've got like big platforms, but you can do very, very targeted points of view and never across one that you disagree with. Exactly. exactly. I think that's a problem. I wanted to, to to turn really quickly to something that you wrote or were quoted in, um, in a USA Today piece, uh, maybe a year and a half ago or so. But this is the quote, and I think it, it ties very much to what we're talking about here, and I just want your response to it. And you're talking specifically about youth, but in a Latino context. And what you say is, we did a really good job, the church, with the immigrant population. We have Spanish masses, we have English classes, we make you feel comfortable, but we haven't done a good job with millennials. Now kids are looking around saying, I don't speak Spanish well, I don't fit in an, I don't fit in, in an English-only experience. I'm not a first-generation immigrant either, so do I have a place in this church, or are you forcing me to make a choice of assimilation or be an immigrant? Like, I mean, there's so much in that, and like, when I, and I know that, like, we just met recently, but like, when I read that, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's been on it for a while, because I'm just coming to this realization recently about this, this idea of, um, you know, what I've described as kind of spiritual orphancy, which is like, we're kind of in the middle of, we're in limbo in a little bit, and kind of don't feel one place or another. That's a layer on top of all the things we just talked about. Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. You know, so, so. I mean, what was behind—I mean, obviously, it's, it speaks for itself, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, what was behind that statement. Well, I, you know, it's very much—I uh, mean, it's very much my life statement, right? Like, I, I've lived that reality, right? It's like I, I realized—and I was blessed because my parents speak Spanish. My parents spoke Spanish at home, so it wasn't hard for me to move into a Spanish reality, going to Spanish Mass. I think I had mentioned to you the first time I went to an English Mass was in college, right? Right. Was, I, I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm praying the Our Father, and everyone's looking at me, and I'm like, I don't know the Our Father in English. Like, I'm sorry, but I know it in Spanish, right? I mean, does that does that count for anything? And meanwhile, you're totally fluent. You went to school in English. You have your, your relationships with your friends. A lot are in English, and then you don't know the Our Father in English. I know it's crazy, right? So it's this, it's this, it's this duality that we live in, mm -hmm. and sometimes we don't know where we fit, right? Depending on your context and your reality, you find yourself not fitting anywhere. 
Because actually, you know, there's a saying in uh, in Spanish, right? Ni de aquí ni de allá, right? I'm neither here nor there because I don't feel in one way or the other connected. I go to Mexico and I'm not Mexican. Uh, I stay here and I'm not American. So where do I fit, right? Mm. Now, once you get older or you have a, a self-identity that says, no, I am American. And, you know, whether you like it or not, I've decided for myself. But when you're a, when you're a high school student, when you're a college student figuring this out, you don't know where you fit. And and you go to church thinking, well, this is where I'm going to be loved, where I belong. And then you're basically forced to choose. There's the English group, which I don't know the Our Father in English, so that's already out. Or the Spanish group. Well, it's not my reality either. They actually speak only Spanish, and I love a little bilingual aspect to it. Sure, or a more culturally relevant one to my American experience. Yeah, and then on top of that, you throw in like a question about, you know, whatever the topic may be this week, you know, BLM or identity or whatever it may be. And then as a young person, you go to, to either of those two things and go help me with the answer, and it's not necessarily uh, fulfilling for them. Well, you know, not to, not to be controversial here, but the reality is the whole right now Latinx reality is a conversation that's blowing up in the different spaces. Is it good? Is it bad? I think there was like just a USA Today piece on Latinx and saying, you know, don't try to change my, you know, Hispanic roots, you know, or my Latino, my Latino identity by adding your X at the end. Right. But I mean, you have people all across the spectrums, right? Oh, thinking, for sure. Thinking that's good, that's bad. It's more inclusive. It's less inclusive. So I mean, I feel like it's a conversation that's continuing to evolve. Yeah. And where do they get, you know, the answers to that? Um, to those questions, right? In other words, again, my, my question is always, because I, I, what I want to ask you is, where have we been, you know, there has been less success from, the, from a millennial standpoint in terms of these kind of questions and issues, but one of the things that you said to me that just blew my mind was, well, when I work with young people, I'll do like, you know, the songs, we get together and we do, we'll have a retreat, but we'll do the songs in Spanish because that's what they know. But then the whole rest of it, I'm like, well, that's so simple. It's so elegant. And it's those kind of things that I think are an example of what's to be done to kind of bridge that that divide. Right. Well, I, and I think, you know, we, we fall back into like, oh, bilingual. I just need to do everything in English and Spanish. That's what you mean. And it's like, no, no, no. It's not just it's not just translating. Right. It's it's this idea of you may know a Spanish prayer song that you've been going to mass for the last 15, 20 years of your life. Let's pray that. Let's sing that. And then let's talk in English about what you're feeling and how you're feeling it, because the discussion may be more comfortable for you in English. And it comes, I mean, it flows very naturally, not this very staccato, we stop one, we begin the other. Yeah. And I feel that that sometimes is our answer, it is. and it doesn't necessarily flow. And then you're thinking, well, I don't know, that's so weird. I mean, I was doing it bilingual, so I don't understand why people aren't connecting. Why is it the answer? Do you think it's just easier? Like, it's like, it's just sort of something I can wrap my head around and I think just so. do? I think so. I, I think I think when people think, oh, I'm bilingual, bicultural, I'm looking for something like that. People are like, well, then this is what I can do. And, and you don't really think it through. And it goes back to your segmentation question. We don't say, well, let me see the reality. Let me talk to them and let's see how I can then filter that in order to give them what they're looking for. I just think, oh, they mean English. Okay, English, Spanish. Here we go. Right. But we're talking about so much more than language. I mean, we're talking about context, culture, you know, culture aspects, what you what you share. I, I've always find it funny that when you when you work with with uh, jovenes or even with Hispanics. Right. We, we can talk about things like uh, Chapulín Colorado uh -huh. and Chavo del Ocho and they'll know. Right. You see them smile and you see them laugh. 
But I couldn't do that in an English setting, right? I mean, they would be like, I have no clue what you're talking about, right? And the same in reverse, by the in way, the in certain cases. Totally. Yeah. But, but to know that means that you are actually knowing the person in front of you and responding to them. And I think sometimes we don't do that. We just think, okay, I just need to, buy, I just need to make my content bilingual. And it's like, yes. no, no, no. It's not just your content. There's more than just that, right? I love, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I've always shared the story of the, um, of the Aztecs. Uh, the Aztec community in Mexico when they were first being evangelized, right? The Dominicans were going to the Aztecs trying to teach them the faith, and it just wasn't working. And at some point, one of the Dominicans said, let's just watch what they do. Let's get to know them first before just throwing you know, our faith into them. And they realized that the Aztecs would share stories by doing theater, right? So they would act out, and this is how they would learn their history. Mm. So what would happen? These Dominicans would say, well, let's put scripture into theater, and this way they could know the word of God. Totally transformed their missionary evangelization, right? Strategy, if you want to call it Absolutely. that way. And then not only that, they went a step further. Let's know more about this community. They started realizing what do they worship? What do they care about? And the Aztecs, I mean, what, their biggest thing, right? They worship the sun, right? The sun was it. And so they connected, right? They connected and they said, how do we have them worship this Eucharist, right? If you, if you Google tabern uh, not tabernacles, monstrances, if you, if you Google monstrances before the time of Mexico and the Dominicans, all monstrances used to look like the house for the Lord and the Eucharist would go in there. Well, it, really? was, it was during this time that the Dominicans got smart and, co and connected two realities, right? The Aztec reality and the Catholic reality and created a monstrance with the rays of the sun. Right. And I mean, when you and I go to church now, monstrance usually looks like. Sure. The yeah, sun. Right? The sun. Yeah. But that was created from two realities that were totally distinct, but that came together to create something brand new. Super interesting. Right? But it wasn't the Dominicans it, didn't say, let's just change the language. Right. And that's how it's going to evangelize. They had to come up with something different. They changed the context. Correct. That's what they did. Yeah. Correct. I had no idea about that. But ultimately, I mean, the 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 solution is. What you said, which is you got to know people, you have to have a relationship with them, and that's the beauty of our faith is it is relational. We can forget that often, but if we walk with people and understand the way that they, um, their experience and that they've come where they've come from, we're better able to minister to them in a way that actually resonates with them. When I, and I think when you think of of, uh, of our young people who are Latino, who are this living out this bilingualness reality they're looking for a company you know companions they're looking for somebody that to guide them because they don't know where they are i mean i don't know how you were in college when i was in college i was trying to figure that out right i was in i was in mecha i was in jovenes para cristo i was in the newman center but i was in the cultural groups i was in the bio because i was a bio major i was in the bio groups i was just trying to find my identity in all of it and some of it was latino or not i was just yeah. searching yeah. right but we are, we're all in that search as young people, and the church can be a great companion for that. And sometimes we forget that. And we forget that the people are on a journey and that we should walk with them on a journey like Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so, but we, we, we basically just invite them to stuff instead of really saying, let's walk with you. Because sure. actually, Accompaniment. you might actually have something perfect to collaborate with me on, right? And in that mutual accompaniment, we'll both grow. Fascinating. You know, in my college experience, by the way, remember how we talked about St. Augustine and St. Therese? Oh, yeah. I was a St. Augustine. So, <laughs> so my college experience was kind of wandering from the faith, of anything, but having a lot of very interesting arguments with professors about issues that I was defending a Catholic point of view, although I wouldn't have known why. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I was getting great. into some serious arguments, <laughs> you know, with them. By the way, you mentioned Dominican. Did you ever have like a, you have a spirituality or something that you... You know, I Benedictine is, is nice. what, yeah, Benedictine is what definitely got me connected, um, kind of to prayer, to spirituality in a whole new mm. way. I mean, I, I, I think now the Jesuits, because most of my theology degrees have been from Jesuits. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, Benedictine is definitely... Kind of where my roots are. Ora et labora. That's right. Yeah, that's my right. A Benedictine. And I that's and I, stuff can't go wrong. No, you can't yeah. go wrong. And yeah. I mean, I, I use that to this day, right? I mean, I'm working hard and praying hard because both are. <laughs> that's right. Both are extremely important, Amen especially in this kind of ministry. Amen to that. We've got a lot of people, Armando, listening to the show who obviously are living out whatever their vocation is in a position of leadership, and leadership is not always about you know. An amazing insight, and boy, I just hit upon this incredible thing, but it also has a lot to do with um, falling down, right? With failure, with um, some issue where you're trying to overcome something, or you just weren't able to, and then you can kind of learn from that. I'm just curious, in your 20 years of doing this work, you know, when you think of a failure or a moment where you fall down, where you fell down, what was that? Or has that been something that comes to mind for you? You know, it's probably, well, there's a lot. There's definitely a lot. I, I think I go back to, I've been blessed that I had great companions on the faith and that every time I fell, there was someone that was willing to invite me to reflect, to pray about it, to think about it, uh, to be better. I go back to being a youth minister at St. Angelo Marici. And I, I mean, again, I, as I was mentioning to you, I was so zealous about just teaching the faith that sometimes some of the rules that the church had, you know, safe environment, fingerprinting, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, those aren't that important. Let's just keep serving. Uh, and I remember at one point, um, I, I took a group of kids out, uh, leadership teens, mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember one of them got they 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 drove from different places. One of them got into an accident, um, and I mean I hadn't checked insurance. You know you know you don't check off those boxes. You're young. You don't really think those are important. And you look at the church and say, you're so antiquated. You're so slow. This is how we serve people. We don't need those you know those rules. Uh, I, so I learned. I learned why we have insurances and rules. Uh, luckily, nothing, you know, nothing bad happened. It was a, it was a really bad accident, but the young man was okay, and the three people that were with him were all okay. But I, I remember sitting down with parents um, who talked to me afterwards, and you know, I mean, tears in their eyes about, you know, these are the these are my kids, right? You put my kids in danger, right? You you, I mean, and I. I was so focused on connecting them and on having fun with them and on making them part of the community that I never realized the responsibility that came along with it, right? And I think that awoke me to a whole new way. I mean, when I first got the job, it was a transitionary job for me, right? Like, okay, I'm I'm taking this job, but it's so I can get my real job, right? Um, and I think at that moment, God kind of just spoke in a different way and said, is this something you really want to do? Because this is serious. This isn't, this isn't just like a, a little, a little job. This is life right here. Yeah. And you're dealing with life. Mm-hmm. And in this case, life or death, right? So are you willing to take it seriously? And I remember really taking from that experience an opportunity to just change the way. And actually, even when I tell youth ministers, I'm like, you realize the responsibility we have? I mean, we have the ability of helping someone go to heaven or not go to heaven. I mean, Amazing. what kind of response? What else is there? What, right? I mean, so when you when you think about it, we're not just a minister or a youth minister, Hispanic. Like, no, like our job, because we're probably the frontline worker mm-hmm. to get people to heaven or to turn them away. Mm. Right. So so to me, that combined with, you know, the idea of heaven to me is like, I think that's been something that has kind of stayed in my heart for the rest of my years in ministry, right? I've just I've just kept going back to those pieces and saying, this is serious work. You may not think so. You may think I'm wasting my time having coffee with a young man, but none of it is wasted time. Yeah. Was there a particular virtue that you think was 
maybe uh, fortified or grew out of that experience for you? Um, I, I mean, I think humility definitely jumped in. I mean, I think I was doing really well in the sense of like my youth ministry was growing. My pastor was like, you're doing great. The diocese was starting to call me and say, I need help with this. You're doing some awesome stuff. I don't know what you're doing, but it's great. So I was I was on top of cloud nine, right? I was like, there's nothing I can do wrong. I mean, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the golden goose right now. Um, and humility definitely pushed me at that point. And, and the idea of collaboration, you're not doing it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. The importance of humility cannot be overstated, um, which is ironic, right? Because you almost have to yell it from the rooftops to get people to understand how important it is. But um, it came home to me recently when um, I was having a conversation with my brother, who you know is a Benedictine priest, speaking of Benedictines, and he um, is taking some courses on uh, exorcism and demonology and all of that stuff. And in one of the very first modules, and they talked about the importance of humility with respect to deliverance and, and all those kind of uh, of ministries, and the way that the professor put it was something along the lines of the devil has a special place in hell for priests who believe they're the best at this ministry. And it was like, or something like that, right, I'm right, paraphrasing right. it, right? But it was like, it stuck into my mind the idea that that humility as a virtue is the thing that, you know, which is why Our Lady is so powerful in those ministries, is because the ultimate humility, right? And, and, um, and what it, what it means to not have that, right, is a kind of an aperture to uh, to things you don't want to mess with. Yeah, no, no, no. Super important. Yeah, extremely important. And I think in, in what we were talking about at the beginning, right, the paradox of leadership, especially in the church, right, that it's very easy to get caught up in, and especially like on social media, you want to you wanna be known, you want to be recognized, you do want to be a leader. But it's like that leadership comes with a responsibility, and that leadership needs to be at the root founded with humility, or else it's very easy to get off course. Mm -hmm. Very easy to get off course. By the way, you also mentioned parents and that experience that you have and having to talk to them to their kids. Are parents more involved now, same involved, less involved? How do you view the parent vis-a-vis -vis minister in, in, in the context of youth? You know, I, you know, there's been that terminology in the last 10 years about heli helicopter parenting, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and I think they're more involved in the sense of I want to be more connected. And actually, we have seen. We've seen young people less drug use. We've seen young people less even promiscuous, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but I, Yeah, that's true, counterintuitively too. Right, right, right. But I don't know if that's necessarily always been just because you've had helicopter parenting. I think there's a lot of information online, and so I think parents want to read everything, right? They want to read everything to take care of their kids. And I'm like, at some point, you also got to let go of what you're reading to focus on the kid himself, mm -hmm. right? Like, so, so I find that parents who have a desire, have a uphill battle because a lot of times they need to almost surrender, mm. right? This parenting to God. They need to surrender this. I'm willing to see every child differently. And even if it's a lot of work and yeah. even if it's hard, right? This idea of like, uh, I like using, you know, uh, truly listening, listening with a heart, right? Not just our ears, but our hearts so that you can really hear what's going on with your child. Cause just because they're saying something to you doesn't mean that there's not more underneath all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think we rely a lot on information instead of transformation, right? Instead of, so we rely a lot on experts, on hearing the best podcast, on figuring that out. But at some time, at some point, we need to let that go and really focus on our own, on our own like son or daughter. Which is just shades of everything that we've been talking about so far is we really have to just, you know, focus on the person in front of us, the soul in front of us. Um was it, 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 by the way, if this is you that told me this, it'll be really funny. But I heard recently <laughs> a comment about, no, I don't think it was you. No, it wasn't you. I heard a comment about um, Bishop Olmsted, the, the oh, Bishop of Phoenix. Yes, yes. 
And this was from a young man that I recently met um, who said that when he talked to him, he's probably, I don't know, early 30s. He had a conversation with him. He had read some of his apostolic exhortations, and he walked up to him one time after the cathedral, and there was like, you know, 400 people waiting to say hi to him or whatever. And he said, but when I talked to him, the way that he looked at me really made me feel like it was just me, like I was the only person that was there. And it was it was so impactful to this young man, that moment of of accompaniment and moment of paying attention to that, to him and his needs and being with him, that it communicated perhaps even more than the apostolic exhortation that God was coming <laughs> right. up to actually talk to him about. Right. right and right, so right. like just the impact of that accompaniment, the impact of being present and being in relationship with people. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, yeah, it's understated, right? It's, it, we don't see the, we don't see how truly, truly, truly important it is, right? This idea that young people feel completely alone. Uh, even it's, I think 40% of young people who even in a youth group feel completely alone because what they need wow. is the connection with someone. Yeah. And without that connection, I remember in our youth group, we used to have this kind of secret, you know, almost like, you know how those umpires in baseball, they had these like these signs they do. Right, right, so, right. So in yeah. youth ministry, we used to have these signs with like our ears. So people would hold onto their earlobe if you didn't know the person's name in front of you. So if I was talking to you, Deacon, and I didn't know your name, I would hold my ear, which would tell and signal all the other leaders, this guy doesn't know the name. Somebody come and rescue so him. So intercepted and go. So someone yeah, would come hey, in Deacon, like, hey. nice to meet you. And it's like, yeah. Exactly. And it was a way to ensure that no kid would ever feel that no one knew their name there. Wow. Right? It was a way to guarantee. And I mean, I, Springtide Research is a great new research tool from St. Mary's Press, and they've been doing a lot on young people. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have the, these three levels for young people to belong. You know, they need to be known, they need to be named, and they need to belong, right? But if you don't know them and you can't name them, then you they can't belong. You can't know them. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you or the listeners know, but uh, about four four years ago, three years ago, there was a whole synod in the Vatican about right. young people. Yeah. And there was uh, one of eight Americans was there, a young adult in Washington, D.C., a good friend of mine named Jonathan. And he was uh, sitting with the bishops. And they asked him, well, you know, you know some some thoughts. And so he, he, st he stood up and said, how many of you can name me young adults by name? And, you know, some of them looked, some of them smiled, you know, some of them chuckled. And he said, because my experience is we can't minister and serve those we don't know. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So how many do you know by name? Because I think the, the, the more leadership role or the higher the leadership role becomes, the less we know the people we're serving. Right. And it's this it's this very interesting dynamic that we can't let go of that completely, because when we do, we let go of the very essence and the very thing right? That makes us Christian, right? I mean, Jesus at every moment was interacting and encountering with people. Every moment. I mean, you're talking about Jesus on the cross and he's still ministering to the guy next to him on the cross and saying, hey, you're going to be in heaven with me. I mean, it's like mind boggling, right? Like at every moment, Jesus Amen. is ministering. Amen. So we, we can't, I mean, no matter our titles, no matter how, like sure. we need to keep, we need to keep looking to, to all levels because knowing someone by name, reminds us of that initial call, right, to disciple. And that whole idea of names is so biblical. Anyway. Oh, right, I mean, right, right from right. the Old Testament to the New, the power of a name, the importance of a name. And, you know, even in Revelation, when we get, you know, uh, to heaven, we have a, a, you know, we were given that white stone and there's our name inscribed upon it that only God knows. But, but that idea of really knowing somebody that intimately is the heart of the gospel. And it's, 
that's where, that's why the technology sometimes you know gets us it short circuits that in a way because even though technic technically it should enable us to connect it actually puts a, a distance between us and it's so central to, to, to everything that we do well that's what we always, I always say right it's it's who you know right is important but it's also who knows you right because the worst part is when someone knows you and you don't know their name right yeah. they come to you and I mean I see it a lot with young adults right they're so excited to meet Deacon Charlie and Deacon Charlie spoke to a hundred people and Deacon Charlie can't memorize a hundred names mm -hmm. but they somehow felt connected to him and they come to Deacon Charlie and Deacon Charlie's like hey buddy <laughs> right, you know right. and, and and yeah I can't expect you to know a hundred names but oh, I yeah. can't tell you how many times you see a young person so excited to talk to someone sure. and it just like crushes them mm. right to be like oh I'm not known what, what's something, I mean, it, this, you know, I know we have to wrap up because I, you've got to get on um, on the road again, but um, what's something that you think everybody can do more of? I mean, maybe it's shades of what we're talking about here, but not everybody's going to be, you know, working in a big diocesan setting. Not everybody's going to have the opportunity to have these sort of like people in front of you willing to hear these things. But what are ways that just uh, anybody else who's not in a role like this can can try to minister in this way, particularly young people? What are things that they can do? You know, I, um, I'm i going to tell you a little story, and then maybe that'll give me, that'll give the insight. Love stories. So so about, about eight years ago, I started an internship program in the diocese. It was a volunteer internship program. I really did it more selfishly, to be honest with you. I did it because I needed more help, right? I was trying to do a lot of stuff, and I just didn't have the help. And I asked the diocese for more funding. And like most dioceses, they have limited funding, so they sure. can't just, you know, throw money. Uh, and so they said, you know what, we can. So you're just going to have to limit what you want to do. Well, I dream big, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to limit it. I need to do this. The Spirit's moving me. So I sent out a request, and I said, young adults, I can't pay you, but I'll make an internship program for the summer. Summer internship program to walk with you, journey with you, mentor you mentor. in order to be able to support you. And mm. I'll do, I can't pay you, but I promise you that by the end of the three months, I will have hooked you up and connected you with Catholic leaders across the Diocese of Orange, right? And first year I got, you know, three or four, mm -hmm. you know, but by the second year, I mean, it was bopping. People were so excited, like, hey, can I sign up? And I'm like, oh, I'm, okay, I need to do more of this. Mm -hmm. um, what was the value of the mentorship, do you think, was the most thing, like from their perspective? From their perspective, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, and the learning, too. I mean, some of them mm -hmm. probably would tell you, Armando, just maybe do some busy work. But I, what, what, what I wanted them to learn was that. You know, ministry, you come to me because you love retreats and you think that because you love retreats, the Jesus is calling you to work for the church and run retreats. Yeah. But no one knows all the back end work, right? All the phone calls, all the prepping, all the planning, all the budgeting. Mm. And all of a sudden I tell them, do some busy work because this is part of the, the calling. This is part of the ministry. Whether you like it or not, if this is not for you, then I want you to, at the end of the three months, know maybe God isn't calling you in this mm. ministry. And you know what? I've been blessed that through this experience, young adults actually who have been called to ministry, have continued on that trajectory. And others who haven't been called to ministry say, you know what, this isn't for me. And I love that fact because mm -hmm. that means that they didn't try being a minister in the church for a year and totally wrecked it and said, you know what, this wasn't for me, I didn't know, mm -hmm. right? That now this, this opportunity is sharing and engaging and exciting them. So when you ask me the question, what it makes me think about is, I think people can be better faith companions. I think they can be better mentors. I think the reality is our church needs yeah. people like your listeners to be mentors, not in the church, outside, outside of the church, the church. right? They, yeah. they need to be eyes and ears, right? Christ eyes and ears out there. Because the truth is, I mean, I have a sister, for example, who's not into the faith. 
And you're saying, what, Armando? You know, he's in church. He's always been in church. How could his sister not be in faith? You're right. And I'm not the one to reach her. There's got to be someone out there that would reach my sister. But he or she out there needs to take on that responsibility, right? And and I think that's been some of our our problems is that we we feel like there's only a certain group of people set up to do this kind of evangelization. Sure. Work, and yet that isn't true, right? Every person listening is called to minister, accompany, mentor someone else. And when you do that, you're transforming a life. You're bringing life to that. You know, I I, I just heard a priest say that we either bring the bread to someone or we are the bread to someone, mm. right? So, so that's basically what I'd be calling them to, right? Be the bread for someone who needs to be nourished by that bread or bring that to them in Jesus Christ. Either way, there are people in your circle of influence that only you can minister and love. And we need more people to That's take beautiful. on that challenge. That's beautiful, brother. Would it be the same answer, do you think, to people who had diocesan ministerial roles that you would give? Um, yeah, I would. I But I would tell them to look outside of just their church. Because sometimes my, diocesan roles, it's very easy to say, oh, well, of course I'm serving. I just went to a parent meeting yesterday. I'd be like, no, 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 no. Right. Who's in your in your immediate circle that you're right. ministering to? What are their names? Yeah. Yep. What are their names? Such what a, are their stories? That's such a great hack, too, to, to really realize how far we all have to go to get to that proximity is what is someone's name? My wife recently met, we do some homeless, we have for a long time, for about 20 years, done homeless uh, ministry. And my wife recently met someone who recounted to her that she has a homeless man that she's been helping for seven years. And my wife said, oh, that's wonderful. What's his name? And it was like silence. that silence, right? And she wasn't saying it to be mean. No, no, of course she not. Was, she was really, in, you know, she was saying it to really bring home that notion of relationship because at the end of the day, that's going to be more powerful than, again, I just went to the parent-teacher thing. I just did X, Y, Z. I just checked the box. Yeah, well, and I, and I think that name to me is the most important because, and, and share those stories, right? Yeah. Share that with your husband or wife at night, you know? Share that with someone else at work that you're doing that. Why? Because that will inspire then others to do the same, right? Uh, we need we need more of that. I feel like we don't, we don't tell enough of those stories. And those stories are what transform us and transform others. Because, you know, good accompaniment, the funny thing is, it actually changes me, you know? It doesn't just change the other person. At the end of the of the three months with those interns, yeah, some of them transform me more than I transform them, right? Wow. I mean, their story, their zeal, their energy, sure. their excitement sure. just reminds me of, oh my gosh, I've totally gotten, I've totally become the structure, right? Yeah. I mean, what I used to be 20 years ago, being zealous and being excited and not worrying about all these rules, these young people have it. And they come to me and remind me and I'm like, Oh man, that's right. I used to totally think like you. That's right. And every time I think, oh, but you can't do that. Oh, but you shouldn't do that. I'm yeah. thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I've I've started to fall into that rut myself, right? So, so to me, what they bring me is just as important as what I offer them. That's amazing how God always gives as you know, as we give, we get right. This idea of, uh, I think it was Mother Teresa, right, who said that if you if you uh, don't find love somewhere, you add love, and there you'll find love, right? This whole idea is like. It's so it's in a way it's so simple, but God is simple, right? Exactly. And he's not a complicated, complicated being. That's awesome, man. I look I really want to um 
commend you on you sharing your voice and doing what you're doing. Because um, I think in particular, where we find ourselves right now in this country at this moment, these kind of conversations and voices like yours, ideas and insights like yours are particularly valuable right now. And so I, I really want to thank you for doing what you do. And I'm only just learning about all of this, right, because we've only known each other for a little bit. But I think we need, um, you know, a lot more people to get hip to the kind of stuff that you're doing and the approach that you're taking in all these different ministries, particularly as it involves the changing landscape demographically of the church. Um, how can folks follow what you're doing, get in touch with you, learn about the Diocese of Orange or a particular program? Like, how would they find out anymore? You know, we get to our lightning round questions. Lightning round questions. Yes. All right, let's go with a little information. I yeah. mean, usually I'm, uh, you can probably find me on Instagram, all the social medias, Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, a, a, M, a Mar Cervantes on Instagram or A Cervantes on Facebook. You can easily find me there. Uh, RCBO.org is our diocesan page for the Diocese okay. of Orange. That we'll has, put this in the show notes too. That so, has yeah. all the information of you can find me. You can connect with me. You know, obviously LinkedIn. You know, I think I I'm a very excited to to always partner and collaborate. Going back to that humility and collaboration, I find that the Holy Spirit finds different people for different reasons. Oh, and absolutely. Even when I met you, Deacon, and the synergy that happened, I'm like, you know what? Holy Spirit, thank you. Because well, we've made a couple connections <laughs> since, right? That's right. We have. Right. We have. So yeah. so to me, it's, it's just great opportunities to find ways to connect. And I think I've been blessed at this point. I've been blessed to to travel around the nation, uh, to, to connect with leaders all across, that if somehow we can make those connections work for the glory of God, let's praise them. You know, awesome. these relationships. And for the record, if Bishop Van is listening, you got a good one in Armando. Not that I have to tell you because you already know, but um, but awesome. Okay, lightning round. Lightning round. All here right, we go. Here we go. First one, Armando. If Christ Cathedral were going to be in any other city in the world, it would be San Diego. Why? I don't know. I just really like San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, dream car when you were in high school? A Mustang. Did you ever get it? Uh, yes, but not what I thought. What year Mustang was a dream? <laughs> my, my year Mustang dream was like 68, 69. Oh, nice. Okay. But t- ask me what I got. You got like an 85. Like a 74. Oh, okay. Like a 74 on Penny Saver when you couldn't look at pictures. And I called the guy <laughs> and I told them, I said, I got a thousand dollars. You're selling it a thousand. I want it. And I didn't know what it looked like. And my dad said, a man who says on the phone, he's going to buy it, buys it. And I was like, but it's a 74 Mustang. Wow. I bought it. Did it run? Oh yeah. It ran. All right. Nice. Yeah. It ran and was just not the 68, 69 that no, I imagined in you, my brain. You got the, uh, the ugly era <laughs> of the Mustang, which began right around that time. Okay. And last one, percentage of active Catholics that know the difference between diocesan and religious priests? Ooh, that's probably in like the 20%. 20%. Okay. Yeah. I'll give people credit. Nice. One in five. One in five. That's good. One in five is pretty good. (laughs) Awesome. Armando, thanks for being on the show, brother. Really appreciate you being here. Appreciate all the work. God bless and prosper all your ministries. Um, Anything you want to share, kind of parting with uh, with our audience? No, no. My prayers are with all of you. I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity, Deacon. Thank you. And for all of you who are listening, all of you who are doing ministry out in the world, continue. And know that our prayers are with you. And you know, I don't see a difference between me as a minister who has it as a title and you who are doing it in the world. We are called to evangelize, brothers and sisters. So let's Amen. pray for each other. Awesome. All right. Well, then uh, that's us for this episode. And we'll see you again next time. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. 
You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.